Welcome to Care Captains, the podcast where Norbert Farkas has candid conversations with visionary healthcare leaders. Explore the projects, hurdles, and triumphs in disease prevention, diagnosis, and cure. Join us for a masterclass in healthcare innovation for well-being. Welcome to the next episode of Care Captives. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Veronica Denti-Betty, our guest who is dedicated to launching vaccines in developing countries. Veronica's journey begins with an unexpected introduction to the healthcare industry during her MBA class. Her motivation is deeply rooted in her personal experiences, notably her mother's battle with meningitis. Motivated by this personal connection, Veronica joined the pharmaceutical industry, launching novel therapies and vaccines. After a decade in the for-profit sector, she signed up to Kevi, the Vaccine Alliance, where she leads programs launching life-saving vaccines in developing nations. Besides sharing her career highlights, she also offers valuable advice for the next generation, emphasizing the importance of being curious, proactive, and exploring opportunities. Veronica's dedication to mentoring and her venture capital advisory role highlight her commitment to fostering diversity and supporting noble initiatives. Additionally, she discusses the challenges and rewards of balancing motherhood with a demanding career. Hi, Veronica. Welcome to Care Captains. Uh, I'm glad to have you in the podcast. How are you today, Veronica? Hi, very well, Norbert. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very honored. And thanks for joining. You know, the, the reason why I wanted to really have this short conversation with you, you are one of the only people in my network who is working in low and middle income countries, launching novel vaccines. I was really curious that uh, what's your journey? How did you end up working at Gavi? How did you get uh, to this uh, field? Thank you. Thank you so much. So my journey to Gavi was, uh, was possibly probably happening in a few steps. And it started with my journey to healthcare, which somehow was not very intentional. It, it happened outside of uh, an MBA class, one lunch, where the CEO of Novartis at the time, Daniel Vazella, was giving a talk. And people literally, friends literally dragged me into listening to him. And I just loved what I heard in terms of making an impact to people and making an impact to health. I did not look into health before, but it resonated with me because of my personal story. My mother had meningitis at age of five. And because of meningitis, I grew up with a deaf parent, or actually two deaf parents. And I have witnessed doctors and hospitals for a large time of my teenage years, supporting my mom through other illnesses. And I've seen how much hope and how much change and how much impact proper healthcare and access to healthcare and the incredible commitment of doctors and science have made to my family. My mother adopted a, an implant for hearing very late in her life. It basically was a miracle that brought her hearing back. So because of that, I decided to join the pharmaceutical industry with Novartis, where I spent about 11 years. And I loved it, Norbert. That's also where we met. It was exciting. It was fun. There was a lot of funding. There was incredible training. I've learned from immense 
professionals on, on launching new therapies in markets that were very profitable. So in high income markets across the globe. And the lower and middle income countries were defined as the rest of the world markets. They were not a priority, at least for that decade. Um, but then I started working in vaccines within Novartis. And with vaccines, there was a change in the agenda that cared about healthy individuals. It was a prevention agenda. It was an agenda with ministries of health. And that shift, I think, brought a bit of self-discovery into my values and what impact I wanted to bring to the world. And it just happened by chance that I was offered the opportunity to represent Novartis at IFPMA, which is a, an acronym for the International Federation of Pharmaceutical Manufacturers based in Geneva. So as I went to their meetings, I then had an opportunity to observe the Gavi board meeting in June 2013. And I'll never forget that moment. The doors opened to a board meeting that was full of people of all colors, with all clothes, with an incredible sense of respect, listening to each other, for a common cause that was immense. A common cause bringing together manufacturers, dozens of them, and bringing together ministries of health across 70 countries to try and make access happen more predictably, more sustainably, or happen at all in countries that had not picked up vaccines that could save millions of lives. Um, it was a new reality for me, I must admit. I was still focused very much on the more profitable realities. Um, and after witnessing what was possible, the caliber of the people in the room, the immense agenda and the incredible impact, my heart just moved. And I was lucky enough to be able to you know, be recruited into Gavi, which is a whole other topic, not, not as, as easy as one might think. And I had to take a hard decision, Norbert, because the position that fit my skills best, and that I'm still very happy to have taken nine years ago now, required a cut in salary by a third, and it required a cut in seniority by what ended up being two levels, not even just one. So I left a cushioned global marketing director role in one of the top pharma companies at headquarters level to join an organization that is, I would say, bigger in its footprint of people that it touches, um, but certainly had roles that were a lot more junior for me. And it was probably the best thing that ever happened or that I ever chose to do, Norbert. Um, it was a journey that brought me to now lead two vaccine programs, one for pneumonia vaccines and the other one for rotavirus vaccines. And a third thing, which is a new initiative across all of the antigens that are more than 19 that Gavi supports today to help countries navigate what is now 
a very broad menu of vaccine programs, vaccine products, presentations, and options to make um, not only investments in vaccinating against a new disease with a new vaccine, but also finding the right balance of product mix that is sustainable for a certain country reality and that has reliable supply, which is a challenge that in low and middle income countries is probably a bit more common than, than in others. Thank you, Veronica, for sharing this uh, very personal story. And I truly see your, your personal calling joining first the industry and after going to, to Gavi. Let's maybe stay um, a little bit on, on the Gavi uh, job, uh, what you are now doing. Can you a little bit describe us that, that how do you um, launch pneumonia, rotavirus vaccines? What is your daily job? Sure. And, and just to clarify, I don't launch. It is the ministries of health that do. And this regard, our my work is just to facilitate launches, to ensure that there is the right support at the right time to the ministries of health that want to make an investment or scale up their investment in programs. So what does this mean in practice? I, I belong to the vaccine programs team at Gavi, which is one of the key functions of Gavi, as the name says. And we bring together at the same table our alliance partners, because Gavi is the global alliance for vaccines and immunization. And these partners are WHO, UNICEF, the Center for Disease Control in the U.S., as well as the World Bank and the Gates Foundation. And there's also other partners such as the Clinton Health Access Initiative, PATH, um, JSI, that all are helping with this big agenda of doing two things. Bring the pneumococcal vaccine to the country that hasn't introduced it yet, and the good news there is the majority of the countries that are eligible for our support, we now support 57 based on gross national income, bottom up. And out of them, the large majority have already started vaccinating their children against pneumonia with immense results. Um, they're still the last mile. And as you know, that's always the toughest one. These are very fragile countries that have publicly been engaged in manifesting their political will to introduce and in requesting their support. These are Somalia, South Sudan, Guinea, Chad, before a couple of others that hopefully will come soon. These are very fragile realities where um, the number of people able to work on this, even at the ministry, is significantly smaller than in any other of the governments that one might interface in wealthier countries. So um, their agenda, you might have the same person trying to implement three, four programs with a very small team. And the peculiarity of Gavi is we also require the country to co-finance the program. So we offer support for the largest share 
of the vaccine cost, but our model requests that the government also puts their own money in the game. That's really how sustainability is then built over time. Um, so how do we do that? It's a mix at this stage of relying on advocacy partners. And in the pneumonia space, Save the Children is incredible at that. There's also the Every Breath Counts Coalition that has been immense in mobilizing um, political will and support just by bringing the data forward. Because the data for the pneumonia vaccine speaks for itself. It's uh, extremely cost-effective and it's extremely life-saving, um, particularly in the context where so many children die from pneumonia still every year. What that means in practice is to generate awareness on the opportunity and mobilize technical assistance through WHO to help countries be equipped with the data, the plans, the budget to submit to Gavi. Um, and I'm one of the many stakeholders that will review the application from the government to request the support starting perhaps a year later and going on hopefully forever. And so it's a big, big commitment. And the application is reviewed by an independent review committee at Gavi, but our work is to make sure that that application that sometimes takes several months, if not years, to be ready, um, is as solid as it can be, not only to be reviewed positively, but more importantly, to ensure that the infrastructure is ready, that the healthcare workers are have good plans to be trained, that social mobilization is properly planned, that cold chain is available and equipped for targets that might not be optimal at launch, but that can be significant and then there is a plan to scale up later. Can I envision that you are rather working with the countries when they make these applications and maybe you evaluate them? Or you also have an important role of talking with WHO, UNICEF, and eventually the manufacturers who will be providing these vaccines? So which part of the value chain would you focus in this so uh, Gavi, job? Gavi touches upon them all. Um, we have a team that interfaces with manufacturers and they sit at the table that, at the virtual table that I would create. We have a team that interfaces with countries and ministries of health for all of the programs that we support. And my own role is to interface with WHO and UNICEF and the other partners that are supporting different countries to have visibility on what are the barriers for countries to introduce, what do we expect in terms of forecast to feed the numbers to the manufacturers for supply planning, what gaps of evidence, analysis, clarification, support do we need to close together. There's also situations for countries that are running programs, particularly the rotavirus one, it's a vaccine against diarrhea, where there might be unexpected events like shortages in supply. And we have been facing that regrettably more times than expected over the last handful of years. And so we go into a supply disruption mitigation mode to offer alternatives. 
to the countries that are affected because their preferred vaccine suddenly is no longer available and they need to replace it with an alternative that they might never have considered before. So how do you help them pick the right alternative with the right data in a time that is of the essence because the longer the wait, the bigger the gap and potential stock out? So that has been a different type of work that requires the same collaborative effort because Gavi does not have boots on the ground and and we rely on our alliance uh, approach to support the ministries to be equipped. And to clarify, the um, Gavi is not a push mechanism. It's just an enabling mechanism. It is entirely in the discretion of the Ministry of Health of the country whether or not to introduce a vaccine and how quickly and how to scale it up, obviously, because it's a government decision, right? We're only there to facilitate the process and provide the resources. And the difference we make is um, by pooling demand and by offering some degree of predictability, we're able to equip UNICEF with with strong um reliance to the fundraising that we do and the forecasting and they can negotiate tenders because it's UNICEF that is the number one procurement agency for vaccines by volume in the world. So they do the hard work of then planning shipments and adjusting shipments when there are shortages. And, you know, sitting where I am in Geneva, uh, looking at all these different pieces of a huge puzzle of work that no single organization can do on its own with, remember, a footprint in 57 countries. And I believe this year we're reaching more than 60 million uh, people with, with the vaccines that we support. So it's an immense agenda. And just sitting here from this vantage point is, is a daily privilege for me. I see your work as an orchestrator, uh, working with all these parties together. And you already mentioned the keyword collaboration. How do you see this work different than launching vaccines in a commercial setup? What are the major differences uh, between Gavi and the industry work? We could have a whole podcast just on this. <laughs> it is uh, it is remarkably different, I would say. Um, so I've launched seven therapies and vaccines, or I helped launch. It's always a team effort in in the private sector, just as well. Beginning of the radical difference is that in pharmaceuticals, the concept of launch readiness or pre-launch readiness, the famous, what used to be the Lehman curve of investing the most in the three years that precede the launch, where you really have a huge budget, huge team, lots of market research and forecasts with dozens of scenarios. That concept is not a concept in global health in the public markets, where the focus is still very much on solving the bigger problem, which is making vaccines available. So developing new vaccines in presentations that suit low-income country settings, you know, multi-dose vials rather than single ones because of cold chain space, because of cost. 
and um, also the focus in on, on ensuring that there is sufficient supply for them. You know, we've, we've learned a few lessons there also with the COVID-19 vaccines that low and middle income countries are not necessarily the first ones, despite perhaps for pneumonia and rotavirus, their disease burden is very clearly the one with the biggest need. And yet um, the availability of the vaccine doesn't necessarily match that. Um, so launch readiness is not a concept. There is a pipeline monitoring concept, but I think the effort of launching something new that is developed specifically for low and middle income countries, which is something that's starting, that is started very recently and that I, I find wonderful because there is the group of the developing countries vaccine manufacturers called DCVMN that are gathering together for the massive change to access an impact that they enable by the sheer scale of volume and speed that they can operate with. And these new vaccines that are made in the South, for the South, um, don't have big marketing teams that do all of these launch readiness for them. So there's been an approach of um, understanding what are the incentives and barriers of uh, uptake of these vaccines that are alternative vaccines that can be up to you know 30 to 70 percent cheaper. And what does that mean for, for our model? What does it mean in terms of um, helping countries being aware of these alternatives, being equipped to assess them? And we've seen a lot of variability. You can imagine 57 countries, uh, 19 antigens, and suddenly there's so many more different products for these antigens, uh, which is a beauty of innovation, but the complexity at the receiving end of, again, the small team at the Ministry of Health is really, really big. And I'm not sure that we have matched the investment on the science, manufacturing, supply, innovative product side with the investment that countries and governments would need to be equipped to assess them. And, and as a health economist, I think you also know how much it takes. There's also a data gap, Norbert. Uh, you have all the data available in, uh, in the uh, European and American settings, and also, of course, in many Asians as well. Uh, but in some of the lower income countries, there was very little evidence. So while there are trials going on with surveillance to measure impact and disease burden and potential um, potential for making a change, they're still not as, as widespread. So there's significant investment from CDC and through the Gates Foundation and other partners, but it's, it's really much smaller compared to the wealth of evidence that is available in other countries. So I hope this gives you a view of, um, of how launch readiness in the public sector is a bit different than in the private. And finally, as you said, orchestrator, and I love that analogy, being part of an orchestra is different than being part of, you know, the team of three lead violins that have a very clear set uh, of partition to play. The 
the case of the private sector, everybody is aligned, focused on a clear bottom line goal or top line goal, but it's still a very, very clear, sharp goal. In the public, you need to bring together agendas that have a very clear overlap, but might come from different angles. And so have mixed goals that are joined by consensus. So the sharpness is a little less, but the scale is a lot bigger. Coming back uh, maybe to that point still, you joined uh, Gavi, you took um, a smaller salary, a different title, you have many more challenges ahead of you. How do you define your success or what keeps you going, Veronica? Ha, that's such a beautiful question. Um, I'm not sure they are the same thing, what defines my success and what keeps me going, but potentially, you know, the first two words, three words that come to mind, impact, opportunity, and curiosity. I'm, uh, I'm terribly curious, like my curiosity is endless, which, um, probably helps me to spot a lot of opportunities especially opportunities for impact and, you know, the space of Gavi, the space of, the space of public health is immense with opportunity for impact. Um, so that keeps me going because I, I can see not only what is possible, but I can also see the small difference that, that my contribution can make. Um, little things that are very tangible, you know, helping one country uh, get over or avoid a stock out of two, three months, helping another country re-gear their vaccine portfolio and maybe save uh, a million a month. You know, all of these are small impacts on their own, but very tangible. The second part, which I should also say, is I don't like to go alone. I really do not. So I I enjoy being part, you know, a, a small seat on one wagon of a big train that that brings together such a huge change to humanity. So I, I still feel very privileged to be on, on the Gavi train right now. And and that is definitely one one that keeps me going. Personally, I think my energy probably def- definitely comes from curiosity. It's um, it's keeping your eyes open to the opportunity to do things just a little differently or ask a certain person something they learned that you want to learn or that you can apply in your reality that they have applied in a different one. The other beauty of this work, despite you know the financial cost of it, is, is completely worth it because working in an alliance means that you can tap into so many other organizations that have the wisdom of incredible experts with humanitarian values that that have tried so much before, that have seen so much more before you as well. There's quite a longevity, I would say, also in the staff of our partner organizations. So being able to tap into that expertise, that collective wisdom, is uh, keeps me going as well. Staying on the curiosity, you are also a trained coach. Um, how did you become a trained coach? Do you have any special clientele who you work with? Uh, maybe 
leaders from low and middle income countries, maybe female leaders? So the, the honest answer, I used to be a very active mentor and I keep having occasional mentoring at this stage of my life. And I felt that I wanted to have better tools to be a better mentor. I've typically mentored females and predominantly female scientists, only one entrepreneur from uh, a middle-income country. And the female scientists that I was mentoring had some common mental models or that, that I wanted to understand better. And I had the feeling that their talent, their ambition, their vision was perhaps held back by aspects that were more on the behavioral emotional side. And, and probably that happened with me too. So I've asked a colleague where I could learn better tools for mentoring. And by chance, they recommended this coaching training weekend that literally changed my life. And probably the fact that I'm still married is also thanks to that weekend that then became 100 hours of training. So I am a trained coach. I'm not a certified coach and I'm not a practicing coach as such, but I practice the tools that I've learned in the co-active model in the CTI, co-active training in London almost every day. And these tools start with values. And actually that training happened before I chose to leave the private sector and join the public one and was probably driven by values. Values are what keep you going, actually. Values are a source of energy if you follow them and if you respect them. And as a coach, I had to do, I mean, as I trained as a coach, I had to do work on identifying my whole, my core value, which is care. No kidding, I'm in healthcare. And by recognizing that, I was able to do two things. Be clearer on, on where I wanted to head as a professional and what I wanted to get away from as well. Uh, because at times I find in sectors that are particularly well rewarded financially, um, obviously, you can have leaders or colleagues that have different values that are there for different reasons. And there was a situation for me where I was not comfortable with the values that I that I was immersed in um, at a certain time, and I had to make a change. So that training helped. In terms of mentoring females and female scientists, it gave me the language of processing emotions. It gave me just the, the ability to label, identify, and call out, and some courage to practice the muscle of understanding how not only motivation is impacted, but how certain mental models can hold you back. So I've not practiced as a coach. Um, I have, I keep practicing as a mentor. What I'm taking away out of that, I would say, as a parent today and as a spouse, that was very helpful <laughs> because it gives you, again, tools to hold space for conversations that are difficult but constructive. It gives you the confidence in the need for these conversations and the value for them. I think you also work with many different cultures. You traveled a lot. I think you also lived abroad. What, what do you think? What is the success of, of working in these uh, international organizations? Um, oh, it's a mix. Well, first of all, I'm married to an Indian gentleman. So that in itself is a mix of cultures. 
that that we're reminded about every day. And I do work a lot with Asian and African um, countries at the moment, perhaps a little bit more the Africans. It's interesting how after one spends time with uh, in a reality such as the Gavi one, some of these differences do not become so much visible anymore. I think I was a lot more sensitive to color, to accent, to body language, to uh, different approaches of seeing things. Um, I was, I, I probably noticed them more when I was not part of it. Now that I'm basically sitting in a melting pot, um, it, it, it is second nature, so it's it's even hard to distinguish what is different for me. So making an effort to try and and step out of of the melting pot uh, and looking looking inside, there's an element of language that requires some agility because when everybody speaks in a foreign language with very different accents from different places. Um, Perhaps there needs to be a bit more patience and understanding and an ability of active listening that has to be enhanced. Um, the pace varies by culture a lot. And the you know the, the sensitivities to certain agendas, to just historical leftovers of approaches that are perceived to be colonial. Um, one needs to be aware and sensitive and understand that we are, whatever we can bring together, we're offering it to a reality that is very capable and clearly its own. So it's not for us to assess whether a solution is or is not fit for a certain reality. Um, it's not for us to pre ordain what we think is the right choice in a given setting by one of our stakeholders. Um, it is um, the right choice will be always driven by, by the country that adopts it and respecting that is, is essential. And how to respect that is, is perhaps an exercise in humility or reminding ourselves that, that we're just a vehicle. There's also sensitivities that, I wonder if I have some funny anecdotes for you. Maybe recognizing that the infrastructure at the technological level is not always as, as simple as it can be here. You know, even having video calls in certain settings can be a challenge because of the bandwidth and the connectivity. And that also means that you need to adapt your communication, your tools, whatever exchanges to that. What that means for me specifically is keeping things as clear and simple as possible. I like visualizing a lot. When I can't visualize, I use my hands <laughs> to visualize. Um, but personally, it's been, it's been a journey that has been mostly enriched. And I, I could actually not see myself working in an environment, for example, of only Swiss or only Italian. I'm both people um, only serving one country. I, I wouldn't be able to do that properly. So there could be something innate there. Um, I've always wanted to travel. I think I've been to 60 plus countries so far. 
uh, a good set of them in not so comfortable settings, but beautiful nevertheless. And I don't think it's for everybody. My colleagues that I meet, most of them have a different path than mine. They they do not come with business degrees. They come with degrees in international development, in policy, masters of public health. A lot of them are physicians, gender specialists. So it's it's a very varied world of skills and perspectives. Very wise thoughts. Thank you. Uh, now you also became a mother. You have a very challenging job. Uh, how do you tackle these two parts of, of life? Uh, what What is the secret sauce, Veronica? I don't. I, I, I honestly, I don't tackle it nearly as well as I wish. Um, I'll say what, what probably the majority would find. There's a big difference whether one does have a good partnership or not. Um, I'm blessed to have one, and that really helps. Um, as an individual mother, the tension between my love for work, which I can't deny, and my love for my children is there. And they remind me every day, because they're still little right now. They ask me, why do you work? Why do you work so much? Why is work important? And I would like to give them or offer them um, positions that don't make them hate work as an antagonist and that enable them to see work as something that enriches and gives value to your life. Um, I am considering a short sabbatical period to just rebalance. I think that really helps. In practice, I'm benefiting from an employer that has remote working policies that enable me to have flexibility that would have been unthinkable just three, four years ago. And I acknowledge that. And I am lucky to be able to afford help. So, the you know, an annual babysitter that is part-time, but that really can be there where, where neither my husband or I can be. So it's it's a balance. It's really a balance. There's, I don't think there's a secret to make it at all. And one needs to reconcile with the personal circumstances. I, I, you know, I can't be as present a mother as one of, the, of my neighbors who I respect immensely for the immense mother that she is. And at, at times I wonder, should I, would I rather do that full time? And the truth is for who I am, being honest, I enjoy work. I enjoy doing good work with people that have great mindsets. And I'm not sure I'd be a better mother if I would deprive myself of my my passion for, for working. I like this honest self-reflection that you know who you are and then what is important for you and how you can put all these important uh, elements, factors, loved ones in 24 hours and I think maybe for you, the day is 25 hours uh, when you have a spare, a few spare minutes, you also advise a venture fund. Can you a little bit uh, share with us uh, what your freelance work is? Sure. Um, so it's it's an advisor role and it's only for one very special uh, venture capital fund, which is Loyal VC. And it, it just happened that I met 
um, the founders at an event at INSEAD, which is where I did my MBA. And there was a convergence of values. I absolutely loved their vision of um, diversifying and supporting also um, middle and low-income countries with their portfolio and supporting women and supporting diverse entrepreneurs. And it's because of that alignment of values and a very unique basket of investments that I um, that we agreed that I could be listed as one of their advisors. It is it is a what I would say a marginal and an opportunistic role that just um, facilitates connections and perspectives on on an opportunistic basis. Loyal is fantastic in communicating where they're investing and where these in, you know where the companies could benefit from insights or connections. They send this out routinely, and all I do is check if I can contribute, and when I can, activate myself to do so. Um, the shift, perhaps, this actually very month, is that I have chosen to take a leap and also become an investor in the same fund because I've noticed how well they work. And I've also noticed that the particular risk structure of that fund um, because of how much they diversify is aligned to my risk appetite. So this is my my little on the side additional complementary part of work. But I have probably bigger projects for later on. Um, and that is, um, you know, I, I plan in decades. <laughs> and that is to contribute back a little bit in a classroom, ideally in a classroom setting, share some of the marketing principles that could be relevant for public markets, especially in low and middle income countries. And the other part is to advise other realities in in the health for low and middle income countries space. And what advice you would give for the next generation who would like to find their job either at Gavi or in the industry, or even more importantly, if they would like to find their calling? What advice could I share? Um, the word that comes to mind is questions. Because um, if one keeps the mind open to ask for advice, for insights, for connections, or just asking aspects that are interesting, about aspects that are interesting, asking about opportunities or ideas, I find questions can be just doors that open into conversations that become significant, into connections that can lead to jobs and to meaningful work. The advice I would give is to keep looking for what is interesting and dare to ask, dare to make connections and propose ideas and have projects. The I'm finding the public space a little bit more informal, perhaps, than the private one, and open to um, even shorter-term opportunities and flexible opportunities. There's a lot of consulting work that happens simply because there's a lot of unpredictability in this setting as well. Uh, so those could be aspects that are interesting. And even just looking 
at all the different entities that contribute to the international development agenda, to the international healthcare agenda. It's a big agenda and it needs so many different contributions for it to be lifted up. So the opportunities are immense. It's almost too, too big to list. There are websites that showcase uh, jobs at United Nations. There are websites, you know, through DevEx also that one can look at. Um, but mostly, I think, reading through articles of interest, looking who are the authors, what are the institutions that come from, what projects are they working on, and, um, and seeking perspectives um, is definitely something that, that I found very useful for me. At the same time, I will say that what helped me boost was to start in a reality that was uh, relatively easy to start into uh, because I started in management consulting. So it's a reality that if you are privileged enough to make it in there, you receive so many tools for training, for mentoring, that perhaps in other realities you, you have to go and seek yourself for these journeys. And they will depend on individual interests and values. Thank you, Veronica. I even forgot that uh, you used to be a consultant and maybe that was the first step in your career where you can really go abroad. What a journey. Thanks for sharing that with the audience today and uh, thanks for being here with us. It was really a great pleasure. And maybe next time we can go even deeper in some of the topics that you have just mentioned. Big thank you, Veronica. Very welcome. The privilege was all mine. Thank you, Norbert. I hope you have enjoyed another episode of Care Captains. See you next week.